All right, so tonight we come to the next part of our series on apologetics, on defending our faith, on knowing uh, that we can go out and we can talk to people and have answers for them when they have challenges or they have questions about our uh, beliefs, about Christianity, about Christian the- theism. And we've looked at, again, just a recap, we've looked at worldviews, right? And we covered Christian theism off the bat. That is that we believe in the God of the Bible and we believe that the Bible is God's word and we believe in Jesus and we believe in our need for salvation. We believe that he's the savior. We believe that God's word is inerrant and authoritative. We, we covered that and then we said, okay, but what are some of the other thought processes out there? What are some of the other things that people believe in? We talked about deism. We talked about uh, naturalism. And we talked about the fact that once you reject God, naturalism ultimately leads to Rhymes with smilism and starts with an N. Nihilism, right? Hopelessness, despair. Once God's not there, then what's the purpose? What's the point in getting up? This world is, is not a, a good place to live in, right? This world is, is pretty miserable. And even the people that seem to have it all together are still killing themselves because at the end of it, they come to the realization that they've got everything that they always wanted and it, it doesn't satisfy it doesn't fulfill them. So nihilism, we talked about pantheistic monism. We talked about, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism. We talked about postmodernism. We talked about uh, new age spirituality and, and all of those worldviews. And then we said, one of those has to be true. But that begged the question, what is truth? And we said the truth is that which what? Corresponds with reality. If you were there this morning, you heard Pastor Mike give the same exact definition of truth, didn't you? Truth is what? That which corresponds with reality. And so we talked about that and we said, okay, so then if, if truth is that which corresponds with reality, like if I say the sky is blue, it, my statement doesn't make the sky blue. My statement is true because the reality is that the sky is blue. We can go out and see that. But then we said, okay, so what's the nature then of reality that we're basing truth off of? And we found out that nature, the nature of reality is that reality was created, that it had a cause. And in order for reality to have a cause, it had to have an uncaused first cause. In other words, it had to have a beginning and it had to have a creator. It had to have God is who we've posited that, that it's God, an intelligent creator, an intelligent being, personal being created everything. And then we began to argue a few weeks ago that that is the God of the Bible. Who's the one that's created everything. And we looked at the uniqueness of the Bible. We looked at the canon of the Bible, how we got these 66 books. And then we looked at the transmission of the Bible, how we got from the originals all the way to what we have. And then tonight we're going to start to look at the central figure of the Bible, without whom nothing in the Bible makes any sense at all. And that central figure is the Sunday school answer on three, one, two, three, Jesus. Yes, exactly. Jesus is the central figure of the Bible. Uh, I was going to do an illustration there. Don't worry about it. It's the Holy Spirit didn't want it because I forgot it. But uh, as we go through here and as we, we talk about the different things that uh, are, exist as far as this idea of Jesus, we have to think about Jesus as being one of the most polarizing figures in the entirety of history, right? I mean, for us, we believe what about Jesus? We believe that he is the eternal second person of the Trinity, right? That he had no beginning, that he is the son of God, father, son, Holy Spirit. But being the son of God doesn't mean that he was created, but that it's his position or his role, that he is co-equal with God. We believe that he is fully God, 100% God, that all the attributes and characteristics you see in the father are also true of the, the son. But we also believe that Jesus took on flesh, born of a virgin, at the incarnation, which means to become flesh, that he became a baby, 
was born, that he lived a perfectly sinless life, that he taught his followers many things about the kingdom of God, that he was betrayed by one of those followers, that he was arrested by his own people, that he was turned over to the Jews, that he was crucified on a cross, and that three days later he rose from the grave, and now he has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. That's what we believe about Jesus. But if you go out on the street and you say, hey, what are your thoughts about Jesus? You're going to hear a lot of different things. Some people will believe some of what I just said, but not all of what I just said. Others will say, you know what? I don't really believe any of what you just said. I think that Jesus was maybe just a, a, a prophet. He was a good teacher. Others would say that, that Jesus was some magician because he was able to do these signs and wonders, but they will stop short of saying that he was God. But then there's an entirely different camp that would say, you know what? Jesus never existed. He's a myth. He's a legend. He was something and someone that was made up by a group that wanted a crutch to support their religion. And they would say, unfortunately, that has been perpetuated through unto today. And I'm sure you run into people like that. Some of you may have them in your own family. Some of them, I'm sure, have them, people like that, that are on your college campuses. And so the question that we're asking together tonight is this, did Jesus really exist? If we can't answer that in the affirmative, then we're wasting our time. If Jesus doesn't exist, then the Bible is pointless. So if we're going to hope to defend Christian theism, if we're going to hope to make a defense, to be effective apologists, we need to be able to answer this question, was Jesus truly a historical person? So as we look first, I want us to, to dive into the non-Christian testimony. Because if, if Jesus was as significant a person as we say he is, and as the Bible puts him out to be, then there had to have been some notice of him by those that lived around the same time. He had to have made news, so to speak, with others besides just the biblical writers. And the question is, do we find that? And the answer is, yes, we do. In fact, there are 10 non-Christian sources that reference Jesus within 150 years of his life. 10. 10 non-Christian sources that reference Jesus within 150 years of his life. And you might be thinking, well, 10, that, that doesn't seem like a big number. Let me throw another name at you. Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar was the Roman emperor during the time that Jesus lived, during the New Testament times. You know how many references we have to Tiberius Caesar during that same 150-year time period after his life? Nine. So you've got the Roman emperor the most powerful person in the world at that time. And we only have nine references outside of the Bible to him within 150 years of his existence. You take Jesus, you've got 10. That's significant, okay? That's significant. But what do these 10 really say? What do we learn about Jesus from these 10 references that we see from him? Here's some of the things that we learn. First, we learn that he lived during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. I just covered that. Tiberius Caesar reigned from AD 14 to 37. So these external references, and you'll see a couple of these in just a minute, reference him as, as living during the reign of, of Caesar, Tiberius Caesar. Second, we learn that he lived a, a virtuous life, that people generally thought of Jesus as a good person. Third, we learn that Jesus performed miracles in signs. Again, these are from 
either Roman historians or Jewish historians that are talking about the fact that he was doing these miraculous deeds, these wonders, these signs. What else do we learn about Jesus from non-Christian testimony? We learn that he had a brother named James. Does the Bible teach us that as well? Yeah, it does. But we learn from these non-Christian sources that he had a brother named James. We also learn that he was thought by some to be the Messiah, that he had a following, and those that followed him believed that he was the Messiah. We also learn that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Crucified under Pontius Pilate. I don't know about you, but this is sounding a lot like this is lining up with what we find in the Bible as well. But we also find that he was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. We find that darkness and an earthquake accompanied his death. We find that the disciples claimed he rose from the dead. We find that these same disciples would die for their belief in him. We find that Christianity experienced a a rapid growth following his death and then the claims of his resurrection. And then finally, we find that the disciples refused to worship Roman gods. Does that sound a lot like what we find about Jesus in the Bible? And these are not from believers, okay? These are are from secular, these are from unbelievers, these are from non-Christians that are writing about Jesus, that are writing about things about him during this time. Now, are are they saying that it's absolutely 100% sure that he rose from the dead? No, they're saying that the disciples claimed he did. But what we can see, again, what we're arguing for is, was Jesus truly a historical person? I want to put some flesh and bones to these ancient uh, writers, these, these non-Christians who were talking about Jesus. The first one is this guy. His name is, is Tacitus. He's looking pretty suave up there, chilling in his toga. Praise God, those things went out of style, right? I mean, he's just, everybody was buff back then too. You never see a fat guy in a, in a toga on a statue. I mean, you just don't. Um, but Tacitus, 80, 56 to 120. Okay, so he's living right after the time that, that Jesus was alive, that Jesus died, that he rose from the dead. He's living during the time of the rapid expansion of the church. Well, Tacitus is not just some joker. He's considered by the majority today still to be the most accurate Roman historian that's ever existed. So this guy knows his stuff. And as he was writing, he wrote a work called Annals, A-N-N-A-L-S, Annals. And in this, he refers to an event that took place in Rome in AD 64 when a guy named Nero, you guys all know the name Nero, right? What did Nero do to his own city? Yeah, he, got, he went pyro on it, right? And he set it on fire because he wanted to, to improve the buildings and he didn't want to, uh, to stare at the ugly ones that he already had. Well, that didn't really sit well with the Roman people. So what did the Roman people do? They got angry. And what did Nero do in response? He blamed the Christians for starting the fire that he had started himself. Well, Tacitus records this event, and here's what he says, okay? It's going to be up here on the slide. Again, not a believer, non-Christian. This is what he says. He says this. He says, therefore, to squelch the rumor, Nero created scapegoats and subjected to the most refined tortures those whom the common people called Christians, hated for their abominable crimes. Their name comes from Christ, who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed by the procurator Pontius Pilate. 
suppressed for the moment, the deadly superstition, that is that Jesus rose from the dead, broke out again, not only in Judea, the land which originated all this evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all sorts of horrendous and shameful practices from every part of the world converge and are fervently cultivated. Okay, so uh, did you guys see the, the reference to Christ there, the reference to Jesus? Did he cast any doubt into whether or not Jesus existed as he wrote his name up there? No. He didn't say over this supposed character, this fairy tale person that they all like to follow named Christ. No, he wrote it as though it was what? Accepted, right? What else does he affirm? Let's talk about that for a second. Tacitus, what does he affirm in just this one paragraph? He affirms Jesus' existence. He doesn't deny it. He talks about it as though it's an assumed fact. And again, he's fallen right on the heels of his life. And so he's acknowledging that, yes, Jesus existed. Second, what is he acknowledging? That Jesus lived during the reign of Tiberius. Their name comes from Christ, who, during the reign of Tiberius. So he references that. Again, he affirms the historicity there. He affirms that Jesus was executed by Pontius Pilate. We read of that account multiple times, but specifically John 19, verses 15 through 20. You can read there where Jesus appears before Pilate. Pilate comes out and tells the people, I don't want to crucify this man, but they all shout down, crucify him, crucify him. So he sends Jesus to be crucified and hangs the sign above the cross that says king of the Jews and the Jews get angry about that, right? And so Tacitus is saying, yes, that took place under Pilate's authority. What else does he affirm? Well, he affirms that the church spread following the crucifixion of Jesus. Suppressed for a moment, the deadly superstition broke out again, not only in Judea, the land which originated all this evil, but also in the city of Rome. So he's talking about the, the church, the followers of Jesus, spread far and wide. So here you have this guy, Tacitus, not a believer, not a friend of the Christians. In fact, you can even hear that in the way that he's describing them in this paragraph there. He doesn't think that, that Christians are swell people, are good people. He's not even looking at them and saying, well, they're, they're, they're good for society, right? Like the guy that came up to us on Saddleback when we had free donuts and he goes, are you guys Christians? Yeah, we're Christians. I love Christians, right? I mean, it, it, this isn't even that perspective with Tacitus. Tacitus is not that guy. He, he doesn't like Christianity, but he's also affirming all of these things about Jesus as a historical person. But Tacitus wasn't the only guy. Tacitus wasn't the only guy. There was another guy that was pretty significant, pretty important, pretty uh, weighty as far as historians go. He wasn't a Roman, but he was a Jew, and his name was Josephus. Look at the nose on Josephus. I'm glad we don't make busts anymore. They all had curly hair, too. Josephus, AD 37 to 100, okay? AD 37 to 100. Again, Josephus was, he was Jewish. He was a Jewish politician, soldier, and a historian. But he most definitely was not a Christian. If Tacitus was the most important Roman historian of his time, Josephus would hold that title for the Jews during the same period. Background on Josephus. He was born shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He was born in AD 37. So this would have been fresh after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He was born the son of a man named Matthias, who was a respected high priest in Jerusalem. So Josephus grew up in Jerusalem, in ground zero for everything that took place with Jesus in the beginning of the early church. So Josephus would have been a firsthand witness of the spread of the early church and probably most likely heard the preaching of the earliest apostles as they were spreading the gospel there in Jerusalem. 
Josephus was no stranger to Christ and Christianity. His most well-known work is called Antiquities of the Jews. Antiquities of the Jews. In Antiquities, there's two significant passages that I want us to, to look at tonight. The first one seems brief and it seems odd at first, but it's, it's still significant for us as far as confirming that Jesus was a historical person. Festus now was dead. So the high priest assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus who was called Christ. Jesus was a common name during that time. So Josephus is even going so far as to say, no, this is the Jesus that, again, if you were there this morning, again, guys, go to, to I almost called it big church. Um, <laughs> sorry, I've got my kids. Go, go, go to our weekend services. Be a part of it. It's such a, it, you have to, okay? This, this is, is, is like a, a hot dog off of the rollers at, at 7-Eleven, okay? Going to church on Sunday morning or Saturday night, that's, that's the filet mignon. That's the prime rib, okay? This stuff is like, this is the stuff with the hair on it that's been on the floor a couple times that they put back on, all right? So go to church, all that to say. But anyways, the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ. So we know who we're talking about here. Again, Josephus, a Jewish author, not a friend of, of Christianity. And he says whose name was James. Was James the brother of Jesus? North, south. Yes. Yes, James was the brother of Jesus. How do we know that? Matthew 13, 55. Matthew 13, 55. The people said, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So one of Jesus' brothers was named James. Josephus here is now saying, hey, you know what? Festus is dead. Uh, the high priest assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ. He's affirming the historical existence of Jesus. Jesus was a real person. But he's got another one that's more significant for us. And here it is. It says, at this time appeared Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure. And he gained a following both among many Jews and among many of Greek origin. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. For they reported that he appeared to them alive. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. Y'all, that's pretty significant testimony from a non-Christian about the historical existence of Jesus. What does he affirm? Let's look at that again like we did with Tacitus. Well, number one, again, Jesus' existence. He doesn't argue against that. He assumes that everybody is going to agree. Yes, we know what you're talking about. Jesus, Jesus existed. He also, again, affirms Jesus' miracles. He was a doer of startling deeds. That's what he's talking about there. He affirms Jesus' role as a teacher or a rabbi. He was a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure, and he gained a following. He affirms the existence of the disciples with that, gained a following both among many Jews and among many of Greek origin. He also affirms the opposition from the, the Jews. When Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, among the Jews... What else? He affirms the execution under Pilate, condemned him to the cross, affirms that the execution was on a cross, affirms the report of his resurrection. They reported that he appeared to them alive. 
affirms the spread of the church. Up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. So again, Josephus. Josephus, not a Christian, not a friend of the church. Very clearly pointing to, affirming the historical existence, the reality of Jesus. In fact, a guy named Daryl Bach, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, says this about this passage, about Josephus. Bach says, this text removes any doubt about whether Jesus existed. It indicates that Jesus caused a stir that significantly affected history. Again, that was Josephus's bag. That was Tacitus's passion was history. And both of these guys are making it a point to talk about Jesus as a real historical person. So non-Christian testimony affirms that Jesus existed. How about archaeology? By the way, that's the pool of Siloam where Jesus sent the blind man to wash after he anointed his eyes with uh, mud. Archaeology has, has supported, again, the historical existence of Jesus. We haven't found like Jesus' backpack with his name written on it or anything else like that. We haven't found that, right? But everything that we've found supports the biblical accounts. We found evidence of Nazareth and Cana and Bethsaida and the synagogues and et cetera, et cetera. We've seen references in, in pottery that has been uncovered and in tablets that have been found to Pilate and to Caiaphas. Both of them interviewed Jesus during his trials when he was brought before them. Princeton scholar by the name of James Charlesworth. Now, Princeton, friend of the church or no? Originally, yeah, but anymore, no, not, not so much. You're not going to go to Princeton and hear a lot of sound theology. But one of their professors said this. I appreciate this. He says, for a New Testament scholar to disavow the importance of archaeology for New Testament studies, including Jesus' research, is a form of myopia. Now, if you're like me and you're like, what in the world does myopia mean? Um, maybe you guys all know, but just so that I can confirm my definition with you guys, I'll, I'll clue you in on what I found on the Google. Um, it means being short-sighted. Okay, it means being lacking foresight, choosing to remain ignorant. Okay, so he says it's it's a form of myopia. It leaves gospels as mere stories of relics or relics of ancient rhetoric. Archaeological work, perhaps unintentionally, helps the biblical scholar to rethink and recreate the past. The ancient world known to Jesus and his fellow Jews is beginning to appear before our eyes. I mean, that's true. Archaeology is, is confirming and affirming what we find written in the pages of the scripture. So archaeology, does archaeology affirm it and confirm it? Yes. I, I want to turn finally, though, tonight to Christian testimony. Does Christian testimony confirm that Jesus was a historical person? The answer to that should be hopefully obvious, Right. Yeah, it does. In other words, does the Bible teach us that Jesus is a historical person? Yes, north, south, right? But there's something about that that we kind of shy away from when we think about, well, let's use the Bible to demonstrate that Jesus was a historical person. Does that make anyone else uncomfortable to say, well, Jesus exists because what, the Bible tells me so? It seems like we need to put more weight into the secular historians and into archaeology than we want to put into the pages of Scripture. But I want to ask you, when you read the, the Gospels, when you read the, the New Testament, question for you, are any of them attempting to prove the existence of Jesus? No. 
Nothing in the New Testament is written to prove the existence of Jesus. It's all written assuming what? That he existed. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But that's hugely important for us when we're thinking about using what is undeniably the richest wealth of information that we have about the historical Jesus, biographical information, especially in the Gospels. It's important for us to understand that we can say that the Bible supports and should be believed that Jesus was a historical person. And this is where last week connects to this week. You remember we covered the transmission, how we got from the autographs to what we have today. And it's unbelievably accurate, more accurate than any other work that's out there. And how the, the in thousands of manuscripts that we have help us to be able to see exactly what the original authors wanted us to have. So with that great accuracy, we now look to, okay, so what's the content? Quote here from Craig Evans, who said this, it's of course historically prejudicial to exclude automatically all Christian evidence as if no one who became a follower of Jesus could ever report accurately about his life and his teachings or to assume that all non-Christian evidence was necessarily more objective. So let's talk about the Gospels for a minute. Again, think of it. Did any of the four Gospel writers begin by trying to prove the existence of Jesus? No. Let's talk about the date of those Gospels and when they were written. Because this factors into this for us. Matthew. Conservative estimates. In other words, it's probably earlier. It's, it's probably closer to the, the 60 range than the later range. I'm giving you estimates that even the liberal scholars are going to be okay with at this point, Okay. But Matthew, anywhere from 60 to 80 AD, Jesus was crucified mid to late 30s, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, okay? So Matthew, 80, 60 to to 80, so 30 to, to maybe 50 years, okay? Mark, 80, 50 to 70. Again, these are our generous time frames. AD 50 to 70. We know that Mark was heavily influenced by Peter. So again, we would put his writing probably closer to the 50s because of the fact that Peter's life was eventually cut short through martyrdom. Luke, AD 60 to 80. We believe that it was earlier, again, and a couple reasons why. In the book of Acts in particular, which was the second volume that Luke wrote, and he says that right off the bat. In the book of Acts, though, as, as much as he writes about the spread of the early church, nowhere does he mention anything about the destruction of the temple in AD 70. That's significant. That would have been a, an important part of the, the history of the Jerusalem church and everything that was going on there. You would think that Luke, being as thorough as he was, probably would have brought something up about that. But he writes nothing about it. So I would put it towards the earlier bracket there between 60 and 70 for the authorship of Luke. And then finally, John. 60 to 100. And that one's the, the, the longest. And one of the main reasons is John lived for so long. He was one of the only original 12 who was not uh, martyr, who was not killed for his faith. Okay, so think about those dates though. So you even take the latest date, which is 100, and you're still within 65 years of the events that they're talking about when they record them. There were still going to be living witnesses to those events when these letters, these gospels started to be circulated. And so if I'm the New Testament writers, and I'm just making this up about a guy who never existed, 
And I'm circulating these letters in and around Jerusalem, where all of this is really supposed to have taken place, in and around Israel, which is the epicenter of the life of Christ. Does it make any sense for me to write these letters and send them around when I'm just making all this stuff up? No. They would have had people that were there that saw these things that stood up and said, wait, none of this happened. Jesus didn't even exist. What are you talking about? You've lost your mind. But let's talk more about that. Let's talk about the witnesses in the book of Acts who were popping up at the the same time earlier than this, okay? So these things that are recorded for us in the book of Acts, the the events that are recorded are taking place earlier than than when these things were written down, okay? So let's, Acts 2.32, Peter is preaching here. He says this Jesus, so he's, he's preaching to people again who this, we're talking, this happened less than years ago, right? We're talking, this is in the immediate wake of the resurrection. This is right after the day of Pentecost. In fact, this is on the day of Pentecost. He's preaching right after being sent out. You will go and be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Peter stands up and he says to the the giant group there, Jews and and everybody else. He says, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. So Peter references Jesus by name in front of a, a mass of people and he's referring to something that just happened. God raised up. And nobody shouts him down and says, well, who's Jesus? You're crazy. In fact, it's the opposite. How about Acts 3.15? Acts 3.15, again, preaching to Jews, you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. So these bold claims from the early apostles, the early disciples, as they're going out to spread the church, they're saying, we're witnesses of this man, Jesus. And the church is spreading the church is spreading, which means that people were listening to them and going, okay, yeah, we, we understand what you're saying. Yes, we heard too about Jesus. Tell us more about this guy. Acts 4, 18 through 20. So they, the Jews, called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so again, there the Jews are calling Peter and John in before them. And they're saying, you should not speak anymore in the name of Jesus. They're not saying, you guys are crazy. Jesus who? You're making this up. They're saying, stop, stop, stop preaching in his name because they didn't like what was happening. And Peter and and John respond. They say, we have to to speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. And then perhaps the greatest evidence that we have in Acts chapter 26, this is uh, Paul speaking, who used to be Saul. And who was Saul? He was a Pharisee, right? He was a persecutor of the church. He hated Jesus. He would have been very keenly aware of who Jesus was even before his conversion, but post-conversion. So he's there and he's appearing before Festus. Festus was referenced by Josephus, right? After Festus died and then the reference to James, same guy. So he was saying these things in his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But, listen now, Paul responds to that. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. About what things? 
about Jesus and about what he did. The king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. Wow. That's amazing. Paul's standing before the Roman officials and he's going, you guys know about Jesus. You guys have heard about him. I know you have because none of this happened in a corner. This was as public as it could possibly be. It's impossible to deny the historicity of Jesus. It's, I mean, you just have to bury your head in the sands and plug your ears and say, la, 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 la. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't make any sense. Here's another guy. His name is, is Bart Ehrman. He's not a friend of Christianity. He's an agnostic and he is... Um, hostile to the inerrancy and the authority of scripture, okay? So that's his perspective when he comes at us. But this is what he says about this issue of the historicity of Jesus. And I think it's helpful. And I think it's added help because it's coming from a guy that's uh, not on the fast track to uh, eternity with, with God, to put it lightly. He says this, he says, we are not dealing with just one gospel that reports what Jesus said and did from sometime near the end of the first century. We have a number of surviving gospels that are either completely independent of one another or independent in a large number of their traditions. These all attest to the existence of Jesus. More than that, these independent witnesses corroborate many of the same basic sets of data that Jesus not only lived, but that he was a Jewish teacher who was crucified by the Romans at the instigation of Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. So this guy, Bart Ehrman, is saying we look at the, the Gospels and the Gospels prove to us that Jesus was a historical person. You can't deny that. Think about the, the detail that's in the Gospels. Again, if I'm a Gospel writer and I'm just wanting to make up a story or convince people of a lie, I'm not going to include the detail that our Gospel writers do. Here's a couple of them. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. That's pretty specific, isn't it? In the days of Herod the king, again, specific historical detail. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So Matthew was, was detailed, but perhaps none were more detailed than Luke. Luke chapter 1 verse 5 says, In the days of Herod of king, of king of Judea, there was a priest named, priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. So he's talking about the, the promise of the birth of John the Baptist in the days of, though of, of Herod. But Luke chapter two, one through two, which is up on the screen. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, detail, that all the world should be registered. There's another detail. This was the first registration detail when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, detail. Again, it, it doesn't make sense to throw all these details in if you're just making up a story, if you're wanting to deceive people. Luke chapter three, verses one and two. In the 15th year, detail of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, detail, Pontius Pilate, detail, being the governor of Judea, detail, Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, detail, Philip, the tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, detail, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, detail, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, detail, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. See, Luke could have just said, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. But he frames it with all of this historical detail. Why? Because Luke was a historian, he was a physician, he was attentive to detail, but he was reporting facts 
He's reporting things that actually took place. And so what he's doing is he's saying, you can investigate this for yourself. I'll provide the context. I'll provide the frame of reference for when all of these things took place. The gospels provide unquestioning testimony to the historical existence of Jesus. One more though from the Bible, and that's the apostle Paul's testimony. It's the apostle Paul's testimony. You, you read through Paul's letters, and if you pull out the historicity of Jesus, his letters mean nothing. Nothing. It's the ramblings of an insane person. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God set forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. 1 Corinthians 15.3-5, if you want these references, I'll get them to you later. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. Galatians 1, 18 through 20. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord? And then here's an example of a drawn out of, of Paul's arguments and how if you pull Jesus, they make no sense. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering you before God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. On and on and on and on again. Again, if Paul was writing these things mere decades after they occurred, if Jesus wasn't truly a historical person, then Paul would have been at best ignored and at worst thought insane. The New Testament epistles, this is Josh McDowell saying this. The New Testament epistles in the book of Revelation make no sense if they're written about a figure who never existed. It's true. They make no sense if they're written about a figure who never existed. The writings attempt to root the Christian faith squarely in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and promised return. Without those things, there's no reason to continue in the faith. The writers and their readers clearly and firmly believed that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Again, you have to work really hard to maintain a position that says, Jesus was a myth, a legend. He never existed. The, the spread of the church, the fact that we're sitting here tonight, guys, if Jesus was not a historical person, we wouldn't be here. Because the, the church spread on the backs of the apostles who wrote most of the New Testament. During the decades after Jesus was crucified and rose again. And if he wasn't a real person, then this is gibberish. I mean, you might as well write a book about Bozo the Clown and ask people to follow him. 
Nobody in their right mind would do that. But people were willing to follow Jesus. They were willing to obey Jesus. They were willing to trust in the gospel. They were willing to go to their own death for what they believed about Jesus. They're not going to do that if he's not a real person. Again, tonight has been bent towards giving you a greater confidence in the Bible, a greater confidence in Jesus. It's not just Jesus loves me for the Bible tells me so. It's Jesus loves me because Jesus was a real historical figure. And the Bible is relevant and accurate and historical as well. And it's, he loves me because that Bible tells me so. But that doesn't sound as nice when you sing it. Again, if, if you're resisting, if you're holding back, if you're saying, okay, yeah, that's, that's nice and all, but I'm still not in, nothing that I presented tonight is going to convince you. Faith is a gift of God. Belief is wrought in us by him, not by my arguments or the testimony of ancient Christian and non-Christian sources. It's not going to convince you. It's got to be God going to work on you. So let me just encourage you tonight, if you feel that prompting to make that final decision to trust all this, to, to believe all this, to say, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm all in. If you feel that prompting, don't ignore it because it's not me. I, I didn't produce that within you. I can't produce that within you. If you feel that, that, that prompting, it's God working on you right now. And let me just plead with you. Deal with that tonight. Deal with that tonight. Let's pray together and then we'll break up into our uh, small groups. God, we thank you that it is so evident that Jesus was truly a historical person, that he lived and, and died for us, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended to heaven, and that his followers were so enraptured by that that they took that message with them and they fulfilled the great commission like we opened with tonight, talking about that church in Tustin. God, that's what the, the early church was. It was going everywhere they possibly could and, and planting church after church after church to see the gospel continue to be taught. Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you that people responded to that, that Christianity continued to spread and that now we enjoy the benefits of that by the fact that we get to gather here tonight as believers in Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. Pray that our time now in small groups would be beneficial, challenging, helpful, God, and that we would be further equipped to go out and tell more people about Christ. We love you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.